The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage, all the way from the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival 2021, down here in southwest Western Australia, Noongar Buja country. And this month, we're bringing you content from the festival for the whole of June. Later in the show, we'll be catching up with festival director Shan Baker to find out what makes this festival so special. And we'll also hear a reading by Adam Thompson from his book of short stories out now called Born Into This. First up, I get to interview one of my heroes. Bob Brown was elected to the Senate in 1996 after 10 years as a member in Tasmania's state parliament. Since 1996, Bob has continued to take a courageous and often politically lonely stand on issues across the national and international spectrum. Some of the many issues that Bob has raised in the Senate include petrol sniffing in Central Australia, self-determination for West Papua and Tibet, saving Tasmania's ancient forests, opposing the war in Iraq, justice for David Hicks, stopping the sale of the Snowy Hydro Scheme, and opposing the dumping of nuclear waste in Australia. Bob became parliamentary leader of the Australian Greens in 2005. In 2010, he led the Australian Greens to a historic result with more than 1.6 million Australians voting for the Greens and the election of nine senators, one House of Representatives member. As a result of this election, the Greens gained the balance of power in the Senate and signed an agreement with the ALP which allowed Prime Minister Julia Gillard to form government. Bob stepped down as leader of the Australian Greens and then retired from the Senate in June 2012. Arrested twice for obstructing chainsaws in the Tasmanian forests in December, Bob's foundation is now appealing to the High Court to stop all native forest logging in Australia. His father was a Bellingen police sergeant. Bob's motto is, don't get depressed, get active. And here he is, in conversation with myself, at the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. Bob Brown, thank you so much for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage. Great to be here, Paul. Good to be with you. Uh, likewise, I just want to start by asking, how sick are you of talking about Jimi Hendrix? Oh, not at all. I mean, I, the only thing I'm sick about it is that he's not here to talk about himself. I agree. Yeah. yeah. But he was, uh, he was a great poet. Uh, I learned a lot about Jimi Hendrix after I saw him dead. Yes. Uh, I was at the St Mary Abbott's Hospital in London and in he came as I was the young doctor. At, uh, but he was long since dead. Mm-hmm. And, and he's been ever since then, of course, dead. Uh, but uh, a big loss to the world. Another exactly. 27-year-old poet and musician, of course, guitarist. Yeah who um, died right at the prime of his extraordinary, prodigious show of talent. I was going to the Isle of Wight Music Festival after that, really? and he was to be the... the I'd never heard him in person. Mm-hmm. He was to be the uh, lead attraction, but it mm. never happened. Yeah, very sad. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm not afraid to say you're a real political hero of mine, and one of the reasons I got became active with the Greens. I have to tell you, Paul, you're in a minority if that's the case. <laughs> I know. Well, not where we live. We live in Castlemaine. Oh, well, no, so, Castlemaine yeah, yeah, rocks. Quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. So not, not so We've much. We've been there. So we... Even here, maybe not, but... Uh, yeah. Yes, no, Margaret River. Yeah. And Signet, where we come from. Uh, Paul's here with me today. And yeah. uh, they're the sort of towns that uh, are the, uh, the bright spot of, of geography in uh, a world that very badly needs a geography of hope. Definitely. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, because like, you spent a lot of years in Canberra, and geez, you must have found it a pretty cold with someone with your scruples and integrity you must have found out a pretty cold and lonely place at times well we're all just human beings but uh yeah sticking to what you think is a uh, no-no in politics and so mm -hmm. i was never minister for anything but i did get to lead the greens i was there just one of us at the turn of this century and by 2010 we had 10 of us and it was because we were speaking up on climate change and the destruction of the Australian environment which for example has the world's worst record of mammal extinctions and so much else when it was not kosher to do so you, you, you should be talking about all the trivia that overtakes politics and, and the serious matters uh, but I was very pleased to be a Green. I'd got uh, I'd fallen in with the Greens who formed a month before I arrived in Tasmania back in 1972 over the flooding of Lake Pedder, mm -hmm. world's first Greens party. And so uh, it was great finally, because uh, I stood for the Senate in mm -hmm. 1975 in Launceston for the, seat, uh, for the seat of Tasmania, number two on the ticket, and I think I got 200 and, no, 197 votes statewide. Right. So it was quite a while before it built up to finally getting in in 1995 and then spent 16 years in the Senate and uh, it's a great privilege being a representative of people but particularly ideas that otherwise have no place in this materialist world which is ripping itself mm -hmm. to bits, mm -hmm. which is uh, smashing this planet of ours, uh, pulverising it and is hell-bent on doing so at the altar of the great god growth, capital G for growth there. Mm -hmm. When I was in medical school, growth was something that it would overtake you and kill you, but um, uh, in economics that lesson hasn't yet been learnt. Mm. But until we get off the growth train, we are into self-destruction at a great rate. And I mean, I've, I've, that's... Uh, that's uh, reports coming out, scientific reports coming out on that every day of the week. However, at the last national election in Australia, 2019, 90% mm -hmm. of people voted for more coal mines, more gas fracking, more destruction, therefore, of the coral reefs, more logging, mm. uh, uh, and so on, and more, uh, more stuff. Mm. And so it's a human dilemma. It's not the politicians, it's the people who mm. vote for them. And we have to take responsibility for that and, uh, uh, and, for, and for how we vote. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we've just had a state election in Tasmania mm -hmm. and my foundation ran ads saying, uh, green your vote, mm -hmm. little g, environmentalise your vote. And then next to that was a picture of a destroyed forest with a young woman standing on a stump. Mm -hmm. 
all be part of the problem. So agreeing a vote all be part of the problem. Mm. Well, people didn't like that. Mm. They didn't like being told that if they voted for more destruction, they are actually part of the problem. Of course. But that's common sense. Yeah, I know. Wow. In, in happier news, how's retirement been for you? Do, you? do you miss politics, active politics? Like a hole in the head. Yeah. It is a great privilege, <laughs> but, you know, it's very demanding. And uh, you, you have to make way for other people. And, and I knew my time had come and very pleased I left when I did because I wanted to get back to being an environmental activist. Mm -hmm. That's where my heart always is and always has been. And here I am. I, we set up a foundation. It's now employing 20 people. We've mm -hmm. got people, as you and I are speaking, Paul, uh, blockading the Tarkine Forest in Tasmania. We were stop logging now for four years. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we've had hundreds of women and men in there, up trees, uh, in front of bulldozers. Uh, I'm back due in the Magistrates Court in Hobart next month for mm -hmm. getting in the way of uh, bulldozers in the northeast forest where swift parrots were, were depending on those forests to survive. Just yesterday, the, national, the most powerful environmentalist in the country, mm -hmm. which is Susan Lee, mm -hmm. the Minister for the Environment, was out looking at swift parrots that had returned to the mainland and was being uh, quite um, celebratory about having seen these parrots. So I uh, put out a press release saying, well, she's invited down to Tasmania to see the smouldering ruins of the forest where these parrots nest. Mm. That is where they regenerate. They do that in Tasmania over summer. They migrate mm. to Tasmania. And if you just flatten and burn their forests, as this minister is allowing on her watch, the Minister for the Environment, then uh, you're driving the birds to extinction. Mm -hmm. We thought a year or two ago there were a couple of thousand left. The Australian National University study last year says 300. They're listed critically endangered. Uh, by the world authorities, fastest parrots on earth heading at a faster rate than ever to extinction, not despite but because of the Minister for the State and National mm. Ministers for the Environment and their support. Mm. They actually support the napalming and destruction of the nesting sites of swift parrot, heritage, wow. uh, swift parrot habitat. Uh, and people vote for it, you see. The people knew when they were voting in 2019 that both the Labor and Liberal parties are in favour of more faster logging, and that mm -hmm. includes uh, the ongoing logging here in Western Australia. And I'm just tomorrow very happily meeting up with the local nanas for the forest, the, the people who are uh, uh, women, who are mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers who want to protect these forests and uh, we'll have a great time strategising about mm -hmm. what to do about it but there is only one thing to do and that's get out of the chair, get out of the comfort zone, step off the footpath and get in their way. Mm -hmm. mm. That's great. You're here doing a couple of things Saturday night, you've got the big keynote speech and... Well um, I'm having a yarn with Jane Caro and... Uh, sounds I've, fun. I, I've said to her, I'm, I'm settled to ask her the hard question. <laughs> we had a yarn on the phone the other day. So, yes, that'll be great. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. And you've released a number of books throughout the years, Optimism yes. being your last in 2014. Will we see any more from you? 
Yeah, well, I was talking with Paul uh, coming over here uh, just today about one book left which I really want to get out is called Defiance. Mm -hmm. follows on from yeah. optimism and it's defying uh, what the world, uh, world authorities, aided and abetted by the voters, are doing to our natural environment. And that does mean um, breaking the traces. It does mean getting in the way. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's a long history of such activism going back to Christ turning up the business person's tables yeah. outside the temple. Mm -hmm. We don't like to hear about that very much, but it was illegal, <laughs> know. you know. And then there was Gandhi with the salt marshes. Mm -hmm. uh, salt marches. He uh, got locked up for a number of years for doing that. And of course the suffragettes who uh, ended up in jail being stomach pumped when they went on mm -hmm. uh, uh, when they went on a starvation routine, and and Martin Luther King and H.G. Uh, Thoreau and a lot of a lot of people. But uh, when the law is wrong, and many of our laws these days are written by the captains of industry who go into spineless politicians and get put through parliaments laws which we're seeing in all states in Australia now. These are laws to punish environmentalists who take a stand. Mm -hmm. So don't, uh, you know, they're dismantling laws to protect the environment and increasing the penalties on people who would stand for the environment. Mm -hmm. And if we uh, acquiesce to that, kowtow to that, then we become as that part of the problem. And I have no intention of doing it. I love this planet, I love the people on it, I love the species. I think it's a fantastic... It is, so far as we know, the only tiny speck mm -hmm. in the whole universe which not only has life, but it has consciousness, awareness and the ability to enjoy and extol the magnificence of the whole universe. And here we are plundering it to the point of where some scientists now think our population won't be 11 billion, as the United Nations predicts at the end of this century, mm -hmm. but it will be 1 billion. And when you, th you draw a dotted line to that and think about what's coming in between, and you can see the portents of it, then uh, what else would you do but get active to try and head that off? I mean, it's like uh, we're in a plane flying into a storm which we know will rip our wings off. Well, if you're sensible, uh, you all get together and decide we'll fly around that. Uh, but at the moment, no, it's the fastest, quickest. Uh, we, we're not stopping to even contemplate it, and we need to. Yeah. So defiance, and it's quite tricky. Mm -hmm. I mean, at what, where do you draw the line in making a stand against the violence that's being perpetrated globally on the biosphere upon which, we, which cradled us into existence upon which we all depend? Mm -hmm. I believe it, we can't be violent because ultimately the state has uh, the uh, will win. They have the tanks, the guns, even the nuclear weapons. Mm. But it has to be non-violence and that means we move into a fear zone because you, if you're going to be non-violent, they're going to ride over you. And we've just re in Tasmania, the people, uh, although the Liberals vote dropped. Mm. They just re-elected a Liberal government committed now to putting yours truly and people like me in jail for four years for standing peacefully in front of a tree full of wildlife mm -hmm. that they're about to chop down and put on a ship which they call the China Express as wood chips to be burnt somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, 
I ask you, but <laughs> uh, it's great to be alive and to be able to do something about that. Exactly. And you're a doctor and a politician. Is writing something that you enjoy or do you see it as a bit of a, a chore? No, writing's a great pleasure. Uh, I have enjoyed writing poetry, for example, over the time. And at the moment, uh, a good friend, the uh, girl Steve Crump, has put some of that poetry to music and, mm -hmm. and um, uh, under the label of Hidden Veil. And um, that's getting a good reception around the place. But I, I uh, when you get to writing a thing like um, the right of people to breach, break the laws which allow for the destruction of the habitat of rare and endangered creatures, you have to be very judicious about it. Fortunately, Paul, I come from a long line of police officers. Mm. <laughs> so um, uh, I have a very good idea of, of uh, respect for the law, mm -hmm. but not for the people who write it necessarily. And that, that's, there's a difference. And I've been around long, well at the Franklin blockade back there in 1982 three. There were quite a few constables who, when you got arrested, lifted their hat and put them back on their head and inside their hat was a no damn sticker. They were supporting us, but they had to arrest us because that was the laws. Right. And that's the case now. Uh, and I don't judge the, the police, they're the meat and the sandwich. I judge the people who write those laws mm -hmm. and the people who vote for the people who write those laws. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Defiance, it seems like a necessary book for our times. Have you written it? What sort of process? Well, well it's largely in my head, it? but I know it needs... Attention spans are short. Mm -hmm. These days it needs to be short, succinct, to the point, and mm -hmm. that means very often it'll be disregarded. However, all we can all do mm -hmm. when we have thoughts about the way ahead on the planet is put that into words. I get sent books, including from Western Australia, uh, every now and then from mm -hmm. wonderful people who put into thought what they would do to help save this planet. And most of them don't get published. Mm -hmm. But uh, So I don't see this as an individual effort. I see it as a compilation of everybody I've ever known and talked to about it and so on. And, mm -hmm and uh, being in the position where it, it may, may or may not get... My last book that I sent to the three or four publishers has got rejected by the lot of them. Right. So um, we'll see if this one does. But if, if I do get to write Defiance, of course, I'll self-publish if nothing else happens and yeah. uh, we'll give it a good run there. I'm sure you'll find a publisher. feel very good we'll about see. it. We'll <laughs> see. <laughs> Bob Brown, it's been an absolute honour having you on The Quiet Carriage. Could you leave us with a song choice? Well, I better go for Let the Franklin Flow. You know, it's lively, it's uh, memorable, and it had Australia dancing back on the 1st of July, 1983, when the High Court, by four judges to three, said the Franklin will be saved. And uh, Shane Howard was a very young fellow with three or four friends in the band Goanna at the time. Mm -hmm. It didn't come out under that label. But uh, it, it shot up in the uh, top ten and uh, everybody had it on playing after, <laughs> that, after the Franklin was saved. So mm -hmm. thank you, Shane. Let the Franklin Flow by Shane Ho. Here it is. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you.
Southwest shore has to be something worth fighting for. Let the Franklin flow, let the wildlands be. The wilderness should be strong and free. Kudakina to the southwest shore has to be something worth fighting I'm joined now with festival director of Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival, Shan Baker. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you so much for having the Quiet Carriage as part of your wonderful festival. You know what? It's an absolute joy, and I am so excited that you guys are here and we're able to collaborate on this podcast series because I love the Quiet Carriage. And it's just so totally on brand for what we're trying to do here at the festival. Brilliant. So. Thank you so much. 
I have my own answer to this, but for listeners who haven't been to the region, what is the attraction of Margaret River? It's just stunning. It's just one of those places that when you come here for the first time, it absolutely captivates you. It's the coastline. It's, you know, the water. If you're if you're a surfer or a diver or a swimmer, like the beaches are like nothing you've ever seen mm-hmm. before, like white sand, crystal blue water. You can swim with dolphins. It's just it's just incredible. Um And you kind of go inland and there's these incredible wineries Mm -hmm. and just these beautiful open spaces. So it's just, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's kind of magical. Mm -hmm. And a great hub for writers and artists. They seem to be everywhere. Yeah, it's a real, um, it's a real artistic community. Um, And it's a really old artistic community as well. So it's it's one of those places I think people have been coming for years and just suddenly tapping into their kind of artistic spirit. And Mm. you also kind of get stuck here. Mm, yeah, well, there's worse places to <laughs> totally. be stuck. Actually, it reminds me a bit of Castlemaine, where we're from. I don't know if you've made it across there. I have not there. visited that yet. We haven't got the beach and the waves, <laughs> but in a bush sense, in terms of the community, mm-hmm. I do find it quite similar. Mm. Yeah, so this is your first festival, I understand. Last year was cancelled. How tricky is it being a festival organiser during a pandemic? Yeah, what a great gig, isn't it? Hey, come and be our new festival director. And by the way, we're just going to throw a global pandemic into the mix. Mm. Um, Well, planning festivals are are fairly complex anyway, just because the amount of people that are coming, you've got to move a lot of people around, you've got a lot of authors, you've got a lot of venues, you've got a lot to program. That's kind of all the fun stuff. Mm -hmm. The challenge of COVID has been the reprogramming and the reprogramming because Mm -hmm. you kind of cross your fingers and hope that nothing's going to go wrong, but you're planning for everything to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And we have had a couple of little scares along the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over the last year, we've had a couple of surprise lockdowns here in WA, in Perth, and actually in the Southwest as well, just after Christmas, um, which are really, you know, makes you sit back and go "Mm, okay let's relook at everybody's travel plans and Mm -hmm. think about how we do this but right from the start we we prepared we had virtual as a backup plan so it's the first time the festival's gone virtual this year you know Mm -hmm. and we were like okay if the world does end and nobody can leave their living rooms Mm -hmm. we will still hold the festival that's great yeah i do not envy you at all (laughs) i really enjoyed the launch Bob Brown, Julia Baird, taking Centre Stage. Yeah, it was great. I haven't seen too much because I've been busy doing this. I saw Chris Flynn Yeah, we've had you locked in a room, haven't we? You have, but it's a nice room and I'm not (laughs) complaining. Chris Flynn was great. Yeah. Three days in, Mm. how's it all going? Oh, it feels like we're on the home stretch now. And quite honestly, I just don't want it to end. I just want to keep going. I'm pretty sure we could program another week of of incredible sessions just Easily. with everybody we have here just kind of put yeah. them into different groups but yeah. yeah we've um it's now we're well into the to the third day um and it is an incredible day we've got some i mean they're kind of mind-blowing panels um we've got the planet sos panel mm-hmm. with bob brown um Great. caitlin adam jonica um hosted by will yeoman and it, i think that's just going to blow these minds mm-hmm. we've also got the view a view from country panel as well with our aboriginal authors joining mm-hmm. us on stage many of them have been in the podcast room yes um and dr robert isaacs again joining us back on stage that's the man great. who brought us all to tears yesterday so mm-hmm. i'm um i'm expecting that to be a very emotional panel mm-hmm. we've also got um a couple of one-on-one sessions and uh, our session this afternoon with natasha lester talking about the Paris secrets just sold out mm-hmm. so there's literally no more room left to come in and see her um the incredible craig sylvie is coming mm-hmm. down to yep. join us for our penultimate penultimate panel mm-hmm. and then something i'm particularly looking forward to um andrew hagan is zooming in from scotland yes. to talk about mayflies and mayflies mm-hmm. has just been one of those books that has just 
it just stole my heart when yeah. I read it. And it's pretty much stolen everybody's heart. It's been on all the local book clubs. Everyone's like, have you read Mayflies? It's yeah. incredible. So he's going to be joining us at the end of the day on the main stage. And then the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Barry Davola, mm-hmm. who has been <laughs> leading the party charge this weekend, um, will be closing our readers and writers stage talking about his incredible book. Wonderful. Yeah, so many of the events seem sold out. And mm. everyone you walk around seems so happy. Yeah. It's such a great vibe at the festival. So for our listeners out there, if you do have a chance to come down next year of 2022 or future years, definitely do. Um, can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Like, How long oh. have you been living and working in Australia? You, yeah. You forever? So I made the very, maybe the smart decision, maybe not the smart decision, to uh, finally move over to this region at uh, the end of 2019. So mm-hmm. just before a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, effectively, I'm stuck here. I'm, I'm obviously English, but I, I can't go home at the moment because mm-hmm. I can't get back. Um, and the Australian government have been kind enough to give me a visa, but that does mean that I I can't leave the country. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, I'm here, and what a great opportunity to be able to programme this incredible festival. It's fantastic. There's so much work involved for you. Do you get a break straight away, or is it straight on to the (laughs) the next one? It's a wonderful question. Um, I would have had a break. The plan was to have a break, but, of course, COVID has meant borders are closed, so no nipping home Mm -hmm. for a couple of months um, to see the family. So we're just going to roll straight into the next year. We were were very delayed rolling into this year because of COVID. We just didn't know what was happening. We we probably started a couple of months later than we would have liked, and all our timelines did get pushed. So, um, yeah, we're going to go out to publishers and submissions uh, pretty much in the next month. Well, Sean Baker, thank you so much for having us part of this festival. And my accommodation is absolutely out of this world. <laughs> and if you do want us to come across sexy next accommodation. year, yeah. Yeah. if you do want us to come across next year, any other year, just we'll, this, we'll do that for you. This room is open to you. Um, we would love to have you back. I'd love to continue this collaboration. Um, I can't wait to hear the sessions on air. I can't wait to put them on the website. I can't wait for our audience to listen to them. I'm biased, but all the interviewees have been absolutely fantastic so far. So we've enjoyed it as well. Sean <laughs> Baker, Festival Director of the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. Thank you so much. Thank you.
shot just to touch you Then I realize It's a wide open Quiet Carriage. I'm joined by Adam Thompson. Adam Thompson is a Pacquiao writer from Launceston. His debut short story collection, Born Into This, was published by UQP in February 2021. Adam, thank you for joining us today on The Quiet Carriage. Thanks for having me on. How's the festival been for you? It's been great. It's um the first time I've been back in WA mm-hmm. since I was I was actually born here and oh, really? uh, left when I was yeah. a few weeks old and I've never been back. So it's just yeah. been really nice to be back in WA and experiencing this and, and Margaret River is such a beautiful place and you know, I feel really privileged to be here. Brilliant. And have you done many festivals? Um, the book came out in March um, mm-hmm. and so I've only done Sydney and that was only a couple of weeks ago and, mm-hmm. uh, and then this, yeah. Fantastic. And I understand you're going to do a little bit of a reading for us today from the collection. I can, yeah, absolutely. What is the story you're going to read for us? Uh, so this story is called Jack's Island, um, and it's um, set on a, a real island in, in Bass Strait, an Aboriginal-owned island um, mm-hmm. that, um, that we manage that, uh, through the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. And um, it's fictional, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'll, I'll get into it then, hey? Brilliant. Okay. The police boat moves towards Badger Island. It enters the small bay watched over by Jack's hut. His is the only hut on this side of the island and the only one inhabited. Its occupation is betrayed by streaks of chimney smoke that stain the retreating sea fog above it. The hut is nestled amongst thick green coast wattle above a small granite cliff. It is comfortable in its isolation, just like its owner. Both are unaccustomed to being disturbed. The sound of approaching engines invades Jack's dream and he wakes unsettled. 
The police boat circles around his bay, arrogantly declaring its presence. It is large, white and luxurious, with tinted windows and gaudy blue lettering on its side. It looks foreign amid its surroundings of ancient lithic structures, protruding from the mirrored sea. Or perhaps it is the islands, Jack's Island in particular, that are out of place, trapped in another era and detached from the modern world. Naked and bleary-eyed, Jack creeps to the window and peers over the sill. He watches the boat power its way across to the jetty. The party in blue take their time to disembark and hop across the boulders before disappearing into the tunnel of overhanging tea tree leading away from the point. Once the mere sight of police uniforms would have seized Jack's insides. Now, after years in isolation, years of reflection on the life he abandoned, he is impervious to their aura of fear and the threat of their authority. They are as redundant in his world as he is in theirs. Jack takes his time to dress before leaving the hut. He observes the visitors soundlessly from the hiding place within a thatch of dense boobiella. There are five of them, three men and two women. The men stay at the edge of Jack's vision like ghosts. His eyes seek out the women, whom he studies with primal fascination. He sniffs desperately at the air for new scents. After years on the island, Jack has been cleansed of the pollutants that dulled his senses for much of his earlier life. He has become finely tuned to this environment. He has developed the ability to differentiate between native and foreign smells and can isolate and concentrate them in his mind. As the police approach his hut, Jack catches whiffs of orange peel, crusty bread, washing powder, deodorant, lanolin and engine fumes. As if in response to some inner desire, a spiral of wind delivers to him a fleeting waft of femaleness, warm and perfumed and laced with the promise of contentment. With an impulsive shudder, Jack imprints this essence into his mind to savour for as long as possible. Such small and once insignificant things he no longer takes for granted. Jack watches them leave. A white envelope on his rustic table, scattered footprints on the dusty track and an ephemeral trail in the ocean is all they leave behind. Jack's eyes pass over the letter. He closes them and he remembers. The police courtesy visits happened a few times a year when the large boat from Hobart took its tour around the Bass Strait Islands. When they first started visiting, Jack would entertain them, making tea that they would sip gingerly from his stained and chipped cups. He would offer them a leg of cold mutton bird or a sugared doughboy, which they always politely declined. After Jack's Uncle Donnie left the island, he began to hide from unexpected visitors. He did not fear them, far from it. He was simply setting boundaries. Any interaction with outsiders was on his terms and generally only through necessity. He'd first come to the island in 1997 on a trip organised by a local Aboriginal organisation. Back then they'd brought large mobs of the community across to the islands to camp and explore. It was a way of returning to their roots, to the places where many of their modern families were established. Of all the islands they visited, Jack felt the most at home on Badger. He was fascinated to learn about his own family's connection to the place. Above the grassy foreshore on the eastern side of the island, the camp leaders pointed out ruins of old structures. One place, Jack discovered, had belonged to his great-grandfather, William Beaton. The remains of that hut consisted of a barely discernible granite foundation, strewn chimney bricks, darkened with soot and lichen, and a few scattered timbers. Some remnant garden vegetation survived, an agave plant, patches of naked ladies and eggs and bacon daffodils, their appearance garish and exotic against the dullness of the dried summer grasses and native reeds. The hut faced the distant blue hills of Cape Barren Island, 
William's birthplace. To the west and a stone's throw from Badger was Chapel Island, with a sinister volcano-shaped mountain at its centre. Generations of the Beaton family run mutton bird sheds there. Jack left the island after the, that trip, knowing that he would return, but it was not the serene beauty or the call of his family's history that eventually brought him back. It was a prolonged bout of depression following the death of his infant son. In the darkness of those days, the solitude that came with the island's remoteness and isolation seemed like a slender ray of light. And for a long time, it was the desolate and lonely characteristics of the island that resonated deeply with the broken man. Occasionally, planes would land on the airstrip, mainly because the absentee sheep farmer flew across from the islands a few times during the year, most frequently during the shearing season. Jack came to recognise the unique drone and regular misfire of the farmer's plane and was familiar with all the planes that flew amongst the islands and their schedules. Then one day, five years after he'd moved to the island, Jack identified the engine sound of one of the Cessnas belonging to a Launceston-based charter company. Their chief business was giving overpriced flying lessons to privileged kids. His curiosity sparked, Jack made his way to the airstrip to see his Uncle Donnie walk over the rise, shouldering a khaki duffel bag. His hair had thinned and his features had become more drawn since their last meeting, but he was still fit for his age. None of Jack's other family had bothered visiting him, although they all knew where he was. The pretext for Donnie's visit was time out from work and travel. Donnie was Jack's great-uncle, his grandmother's much younger brother. He'd joined the army as a teen and married soon after. Strained from extended periods, Donnie spent abroad and remaining childless, the relationship failed. Donnie spent the rest of his working life travelling Southeast Asia in gas and oil jobs. The envy of many, his lifestyle was a continuous cycle of rough and opulent, oil platforms to plush hotels, hard cabin bunks to the soft and inviting beds of the local women. When Donnie's stay on the island extended beyond a month, Jack became curious about his uncle's intentions and the real reason for his visit. He was very fond of Donnie. Had anyone else just shown up like that, Jack would have run them off the island. But as time progressed, Jack began to appreciate the company. The despair that had driven him to Badger Island began to wane. The two men spent their days improving the hut and tending to Jack's garden. Donnie was a keen fisherman, and many a shadowy evening, Jack would watch him from his garden on the cliff's edge, fishing rod and bucket in hand, crossing the chain of mottled granite boulders that linked to a larger rocky outcrop in the corner of their sapphire cove. There, Donnie had discovered he could catch silver trevally when the wind was barely a breath on a swollen tide. The two of them lived mostly on what they caught from the sea and could grow in Jack's garden. Jack had become proficient with a throwing stick and, like his tribal forebears, would take an unlucky wallaby for protein when the relentless westerly winds made fishing impossible. In autumn, when the earthy seasonal smell of the mutton birds drifted across from Chapel Island, they fashioned a crude raft from old fence posts and rusty oil drums. They paddled it across the 700 metres of rolling channel that separated the two islands to harvest their eula, their mutton birds. In the rocks of a sheltered gulch, they set a metal drum, which Donnie filled with seawater upon arrival. He lit a fire under the drum and fed it with scraps of salt-bleached driftwood he found jammed into rocky crevices and tangled amongst the seaweed at the high watermark. High on his shoulders, Jack carried spear loads of plump, downy mutton bird chicks in from the waving poa fields. Together they squeezed the amber oil from the chicks' stomachs and threw fistfuls of grey feathers into the wind, while the waves sucked the sand from under their feet and the mollyhawks danced in expectation.
After the plucking, Jack would go back into the rookery and leave Donnie to dunk the birds into the scolding pot and rub them back to a soft white skin, just like his grandfather had shown him on the same island when he was a boy. With their quarry stashed in hessian bags, the two-man crew drift paddled home to Badger on the retreating tide. There they laid out their catch on makeshift racks of manuka branches to cool. In the evening they removed the birds' extremities and insides before rubbing them in salt and packing their flattened pale bodies into casks. Salted and brined, the mutton birds would keep for a whole year. When the desire arose, and it regularly did, they seasoned a few of their birds with Jack's dried herbs and ground native peppercorns. They cooked them on carved wooden skewers around beds of glowing coals. Rendered fat dripped from scores in the birds crisping skin onto the fire, creating a pleasant grey smoke and adding another layer of flavour to the already delicious meat. On such occasions, memories aroused by the taste of their culture. Donnie would recount stories of his childhood and Jack would listen intently. The older man told of visiting Badger Island as a young boy. His grandfather William would sail them across from Launceston in a wooden cutter named the Bella. It was a long wet journey in the unpowered boat, heavily burdened by people and supplies. Accompanying Donnie was his mother and three older sisters. They all stayed with William in his tiny hut, a rough and basic wooden structure with a skillion roof and only two small rooms. Surrounding the house was a tea tree fence and a tended garden full of bulbs and succulents. They all slept in one bed, except for William, who had a neat crib next to the fire. Donnie never witnessed the old man sleep. Of a night when he should have been slumbering himself, he would observe his grandfather quietly from his bed, through the opening between the two rooms. William would lean back in his handmade rocking chair in front of the dying fire, sipping cups of leaf tea and quietly humming to himself. Occasionally he would reach into the fireplace and take a stick, which he used to light his pipe. As the tobacco flared, Donnie would catch the old man's face in the light. Fascinated by his brown, wrinkled forehead, long hooked nose and proud moustache, Donnie would wonder at the origins of this mysterious figure. As the flame died, William would blend back into the darkness, where as a dark, dark man he seemed to Donnie to belong. As Donnie's time on the island with Jack approached a year, Jack began to notice his uncle's failing health. The decline had been slow and gradual, but now was very evident, although Donnie was quick to dismiss the matter when it was raised. His one remaining interest was their family's connection to the island. As time went on, this interest turned to fascination and then to obsession. Jack would accompany Donnie on his expeditions around the island in search of ruins and remnants of the old family's lives. They filled Jack's hut with all types of bottles and coins and buttons, treasures that, treasures that they dug or found found or dug up. Donnie discovered a stash of broken inkwells smothered by a century of discarded pine needles under the great macrocarpa down by the jetty. He was adamant they once belonged to Lucy Beaton's school, the first school on the islands for Aboriginal kids. One unnaturally still afternoon under a violent electri electrified sky and at Donnie's unrelenting insistence, they searched carefully through the pieces of a stone wall behind the island's old homestead. At the southern end of the wall, under a piece of glittering basalt, Donnie found a battered jam tin. The tin was so old that the hinges had seized and its lid had fused shut. Donnie's excitement over the find was contagious and the two practically ran back to Jack's hut with their find. Lingering thoughts of mortality brought on by Donnie's fading vigour were forgotten as they held counsel over the opening of the tin. 
After failed attempts using heat and mutton bird oil as lubricant, they finally cut it open with a rusty can opener. Inside, bundled in a greasy cloth, was a hand, large handful of gold sovereigns. They were English coins, with dates ranging between 1819 and 1823. The find was worth a fortune, they both knew it. But neither man, for reasons of his own, sought riches for himself. The true value in the find was in the history and the corroboration of their family's origins. Donnie reckoned that the coins belonged to the original Beaton, the white fellow who came out from London on a tall ship and discovered a relative peace on the islands with an Aboriginal wife and family. Donnie was truly like a boy who had found where X marks the spot. His body allowed him this triumph and celebrated with a sudden return to health for a few days anyway. Then, just as unexpectedly as he arrived, Donnie left. When Donnie didn't return one evening, Jack assumed that he had run out of daylight during his now daily search expedition. But when the next silent evening came, he knew that Donnie was gone. No planes had landed, so Jack reasoned he must have departed opportunistically on a passing boat. His uncle had left behind his bag and his treasures. The only item Jack found to be missing was his best length of rope, his strongest rope, the one they had used to lash their raft. Donnie even left behind his beloved gold sovereigns, which had already dulled considerably since they first opened the tin. Jack picks up the envelope left by the police. His eyes flick past the writing on the front, careful not to read it. What's the point of reading it? It's a letter from Uncle Donnie, of course, with tales of his latest jaunts through Thailand and Vietnam, or musings over his past and his thoughts on being Aboriginal. How he misses his gold coins, and, although he wishes he had taken them with him, to show off to his latest lady friend or his mates on the oil rig, he is glad they are still on the island where they belong. That's all that will be in the letter. Why should he read it? He's got far too much to do. Jack throws the envelope on the fire and walks outside. It is a hot day. He gets on his knees and works in the garden. After a time, he rises and wipes the sweat from his face with the inside of his shirt. He stands to full height with his shirt raised to his chest, allowing the sea breeze to cool his body. His gaze moves across the horizon and over the islands in the distance. He can't believe the police were on his island only hours earlier. Did that really happen? If it wasn't for the letter, now ashes in the fire, it might all have been a dream. Jack's gaze lands on his island and sweeps across the dry landscape, past the ag of plant on the foreshore and the ruins of William Beaton's hut, and settles on the dark she-oak forest nearby, where his eyes linger a little longer than he usually lets them. A wonderful story there, Adam, and a wonderful reading too. The title of that short story was? That's called Jack's Island and it's from my debut um, short story collection called Born Into This. Which I understand has sold out here at the festival. It has. We haven't even finished. We're only two thirds <laughs> of the way through. Yeah. So well done. Thank but you. Everyone else listening can grab a copy at all good bookstores. It's out now. Uh, the University of Queensland Press. Adam Thompson, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the festival. Cool, thanks for having me on.
You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. And the track we had there was Laura Villas with Secret Someones. And the track before was The Triffids with Wide Open Road. And before that, Let the Franklin Flow by Shane Howard. And unfortunately, that is all we have time for today from the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. A huge thank you to my guests. We had Adam Thompson there reading from his book, Born Into This, out now via University of Queensland Press. And before him was Shan Baker, festival director here in Margaret River. And Bob Brown before that. Thank you so much to my guests. And I do hope you can join me again. We're covering the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival all month on The Quiet Carriage. And if you miss any episodes, please remember you can catch them on Spotify. Please join me next week from the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. We'll be catching up with Pitt Williams, Sasha Wolsey and Rachel Johns. My name has been Paul J. Laverty. You can find me across all the socials under that name. Until next time, keep reading.